But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Those are the words of Jesus, found in John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. Well, hi, my name is Doug Hooley, and I'm your host of the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number three in the series based on my latest book, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's available on Amazon.com in Kindle, paperback, and hardcover versions. And if you can't afford those, you can go to my website and get a PDF version for free. You can find out more information on the book and the rest of what I'm doing on my website at DougHooley.com. But today, I want to talk to you about if the church has failed to do what it's supposed to be doing. In this series, I'm going to be giving you somewhat of a different account of church history than what you've likely previously heard. I grew up believing that the church, being what was supposed to be God's organization, had somewhat of a charmed, miraculous existence that's allowed it to flourish. Of course, believing that God is sovereign, I completely believe that God's will has been done regarding the church. But in the end, well, let me just give you my first shocker of this episode. I only believe he's allowed the church to flourish, like according to his sovereign will, he's allowed the nation of Islam to flourish. Yeah, I know. No, this will not be your typical accounting of church history. It will be as accurate as possible, as truthful as I believe it can be. But it'll be the warts and all version of history. Well, for example, because of varying beliefs, by the end of the first century AD, before even the passing of the last apostle of Jesus, which was John, it was already hard to know what someone meant if they called themselves a Christian. By the mid-2nd century, false teaching had become so widespread among those calling themselves Christians that there was already a call to return to the original teachings found in the four Gospels and the writings of the Apostles. Spurious writings in circulation containing false doctrines quickly outnumber the writings of bona fide New Testament authors. These false documents often were supposed to have been written by the apostles of Jesus or Hebrew patriarchs. You know, they were counterfeits. By the 4th century AD, according to the early church historian Epaphanius of Salamis, 80 different heretical sects had been enumerated and documented within Christianity. These were all pseudo-Christian factions, but they thought they were the real thing. So, despite their false teaching, they identified with and laid claim to the name of Jesus. They all believed that they had Christianity right. From the earliest times, the church has been permeated with posers and wolves in sheep's clothing. The spread of blasphemous forms of Christianity often preceded authentic Christianity into various regions, you know, as Christianity spread from Jerusalem. For true followers of Jesus who found themselves relocating to those places, they sometimes found, I mean oftentimes, found the title of Christian had already been taken or claimed. To say that you were a Christian in these areas was to associate yourself with these different heresies that had already gotten there before you. <laughs> in other cases, true Christianity died out in regions because of the effects of persecution, competing pagan mystery religions, and deceptive false teaching from within. In his revelation as recorded by the Apostle John, Jesus emphasized the importance of guarding against deceptive doctrines. Well, you know, when Jesus came and he talked to John, he could have spoken to him about many issues after being gone for what was about 60 years since he ascended into heaven. The fact that Jesus chose to express concerns over false teaching in the church illustrates what a problem it was by the beginning of the second century. You know, the book of Revelation was given to John probably around 96 AD, about four years before the end of the first century. It's no mystery why the human-made institution that developed out of Christianity 
the church, was at such high risk of being false itself. How quickly the church went off the rails. There's a story of a man named Tachian, which illustrates just how quickly traditions and teaching got off track. Tachian was a disciple of one of the earliest and most respected of church fathers. And I'll talk a lot about church fathers later. But this guy's name was Justin Martyr. He lived from about 100 AD until he was put to death. He was martyred in 165 AD. After Justin's death, history records that Tatian began to, quote, cherish different opinions, unquote, from Justin's teaching. Tatian left the Christian faith. I mean, he, this, he reported to or was mentored by Justin Martyr, who uh, possibly knew one, one or more of the apostles. So, I mean, he was so close to Christianity actually beginning. But he left the Christian faith, you know, following Jesus, in favor of following a well-known Gnostic teacher named Valentinus. Valentinus, Valentinus, tomato, tomato, right? Gnosticism was very influential in early Christianity. And we're going to be talking about what Gnosticism is in a future episode. It actually comes up a lot. It was very influential in early Christianity and has shaped what we know as Christianity today. Well, if Jesus truly is the head of the church, how could getting off track so quickly within a hundred years have happened and not just off a little bit? If the church is universal and is currently made up of 2.6 billion members, if the church is also the one associated with all the atrocities committed in its name, and if Jesus is the head of this church, then Jesus is not who the Bible represents him to be. It appears that church history and the Jesus of the Bible just don't line up. The Jesus of the church as history testifies, it's testified for 2,000 years, 1,900 and some odd years. This Jesus is an utter failure as a strategist and a leader. The Jesus of the Bible, however, the Son of the Almighty God, could never be such a terrible failure. As anyone who takes an honest, pragmatic look at the last 2,000 years of church history may conclude, and please don't trip up over the math, okay? So Jesus, <laughs> he ascended like in, in 33 AD, and that would be like uh, 11 years from now, would be 2,000 years. So 1,900 and some odd years, close to 2,000 years, right? But anyone who takes this pragmatic look at the last around 2,000 years of church history may conclude one of the following statements must be true. Either Jesus must be declared an incompetent and utter failure as the head of his church, or what passes as the church does not represent the corporate elect of God who belong to Jesus. If what's passed in history or passes now for the church really is Jesus' kingdom, we have a problem. Please allow me to be blunt and even just a little borderline shocking for a little while here. If we're supposed to think what we know of as the church today is the body of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, then what is Jesus' excuse for not maintaining control of his own body. Why hasn't he been able to hold his body together? There are 35,000 to 45,000 different denominations in the world today, and people are constantly leaving the church to other faiths. There's so many different ways to do Christianity, to think about Jesus, to practice following him. Six out of 10 millennials who grew up in the church have dropped out. Empty Christian cathedrals sit in ruins around the world today. Old church buildings vacated because of lack of interest have been converted by the hundreds into restaurants, pubs, museums, and bed and breakfast inns. Meanwhile, the growth of Islam is outpacing Christianity. 
So what's the matter, Jesus? Why can't Jesus keep up? Why can't Jesus keep people on the same page about what they're supposed to be believing? The doctrines within Christianity are so diverse that they paint completely different pictures of who God is and what your relationship to Him should be. These divergent teachings can't all be right. Someone has got to be worshiping false versions of Jesus within Christianity. The church is claiming all sorts of drastically different things. Like, are we really what some people say are His hands and feet? while Jesus is away? So does God need our help or doesn't he? Is he sovereign or is he waiting to see what we will do? Are his hands tied unless we pray or does he know what's best without us telling him what to do? Is he the God who takes responsibility for everything that happens because it's his will or is he the God who is always putting out fires because things don't go according to his preferred plan or his perfect will? Is God waiting to bless us until we get our act together, or is he teaching us something by keeping us poor and oppressed? Do we have choice or don't we? Are we elect to salvation or is it our choice? Well, so far, Jesus just doesn't seem to have been able to make these things perfectly clear to us. Why isn't the church on the same page as to which God we should be worshiping. As its head, if this organization we call a church really is Jesus's to rule over and regulate, he can't seem to control his people. Thousands of full-time clerical representatives of the church, from Roman Catholic to Baptist, have committed acts of sex abuse on thousands of children in the past few decades, and I imagine long before that. There have been many hundreds of years of documented corruption, what we call licentiousness, and blatant acts of evil at the hands of church leaders. Numerous televangelists who are part of the church in our day have literally been caught with their pants down and their hands in the fiscal cookie jar. Can we talk about Jesus' church being responsible for the Crusades the Inquisition, the execution of Anabaptists who only wanted to be baptized as adults, and the witch trials? I know the church is made up of imperfect sinners. That's pointed out quite often when these things are pointed to. So, who am I to judge? Shouldn't we expect priests acting on behalf of Jesus to sexually abuse young boys going to confession? Shouldn't we expect poor families to send successful television preachers their last dollars so they can buy their third jet? You know, Google uh, is, a, is a quick test of things. Here's a few articles listed out of the 188 million hits you'll get if you Google, has the church failed? Here's a few of them. Three ways churches have failed millennials. The failure of the Christian church. Why? the church is failing, why the church has failed to convert modern man, eight ways the church has failed women, all the ways Christian education and the church have failed. The church has failed persons with developmental disabilities. Okay, so the list goes on 188 million times. That is a lot of failure. O oh, Jesus of the institutional church, does the buck not stop with you? Are you sure you're up to the job? When we say the church has failed to do something, are we not calling its leader a failure? Clearly the church has failed. So what does that mean about Jesus if he truly is in charge of this organization? If the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, how is it? you know, this thing that we think of as the church. How is it that the church could not keep control of Jerusalem during the Crusades? Why did Constantinople, the capital of the Church of the East, the Byzantine Empire, why did it ultimately fall to the Muslims? Why is there so much evil still going on if Jesus 
has had the chance to straighten it all out through using his church as his hands and feet for 2,000 years. According to many, isn't this church supposed to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth? Let me answer that for you quickly. Yes, many do believe that. Yet, between China's Chairman Mao, Russia's Stalin, and Germany's Hitler, secular humanism claimed around 130 million lives in the last century alone. There's supposedly, on the other hand, 2.3 billion Christians that make up the universal church in the world that are at Jesus' disposal. Why then hasn't he put a stop to all of that evil? Why has the church failed to complete what's called by many the Great Commission, spreading the gospel to the entire world and making them disciples? Isn't this supposed to be the most important mission of the church? Has Jesus been distracted? Maybe too secretive with his master plan? Too busy? You say it's not him. It's the people that make up the church. The church... His people need to wake up. Has Jesus allowed his body to fall asleep? Has he lost control of his body? Maybe God made a mistake in choosing his personnel. Maybe Jesus wasn't the right son to send. Maybe he chose Jesus by mistake. Is Jesus not the leader God the Father thought he would be? Or is the church like a chicken running around with its head cut off? Jesus is using the fact that humans are sinners that just don't listen as some kind of an excuse. Well, this is a pathetic picture for you, but it must be true if the church really is the organization of Jesus. Just picture Jesus sitting on the throne next to his father, pointlessly screaming down to the earth at his own blind, deaf, and dumb body that he just can't seem to control. Now, before lightning strikes me dead, (laughs) every time I hear someone say the words, the church has failed or is failing, I cringe. Then I think two thoughts. First, you are absolutely right. The man-made religious institution known as the church today has been a horrendous failure since its start. It deserves every criticism it receives. But then, secondly, I think, the true body of Christ, the ecclesia, complete with Jesus as its head, has never failed. It's only that your idea of what the ecclesia is and what it's supposed to be doing is unbiblical. In the episodes that follow, I'm going to lay out a case for why it is that what is commonly thought of as the universal church is a counterfeit organization. It's not and has never been the same as the actual body of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. The holy called out ones who are in Christ, whom have been chosen by God for salvation. It should be obvious, but needs to be said because millions are doing it. The ramifications of participating in a counterfeit organization where God is concerned are great. Although I'll argue that there is no true universal church on the earth as it's popularly thought of today, Jesus has always had a group or body of chosen, true disciples that are known to him. As the gospel spread throughout the world, so did those individuals who were elected to salvation. Although they've intersected many times with the church, I mean, there have been plenty of saved or authentic followers of Jesus within the church throughout history. They've also existed independently of, and in many cases, despite the church. Despite many obstacles, the individual authentic followers of Jesus have managed to find each other and meet together throughout history. Well, before I go on any further, I need to define a couple of terms. When I use the word biblical, I'm talking about something that's addressed in Scripture. It's translated and understood appropriately. Of course, appropriately understanding Scripture is always contentious. It's a big contentious subject. But understanding the meaning of Scripture as it was intended to be by its author or authors 
is the goal of truth seekers. And when I talk about biblical authors, I'm always talking about the small a authors, you know, like John and Peter and James. And the capital A author is, of course, God himself. He's the one behind what's being authored or written in the Bible. The term unbiblical is not necessarily a bad or negative thing. You can think of something as being unbiblical when the Bible is silent on it or doesn't address it, and it's not in conflict with what is biblical. Unbiblical things may be counterproductive, but also may in fact be a good thing that's edifying to the body of Christ. For example, electric lights are not addressed in the Bible. But having lights in the sanctuary can be very helpful. (laughs) Well, when something is anti-biblical, and this may be a term that's new to you, it's in opposition of what Scripture is telling us. Here's a spoiler alert for you. What we're going to see is that most of what's taking place on Sunday mornings in the overwhelming majority of local churches is completely unbiblical. But more concerning than that is that there is also much taking place that is anti-biblical. Unbiblical and anti-biblical principles can have an interesting relationship. When something is unbiblical, but it is thought of as necessary to be in right relationship with God, it becomes anti-biblical. This is true because the Bible tells us that belief in the authentic Jesus of the Bible is the only thing that it takes to be in right relationship with God. So, for example, tithing, the giving of 10% of one's crops in the Old Testament, and now people think it's 10% of your uh, income, that was an Old Testament requirement for the Jews. The New Testament believers, it's an option for each individual to decide upon without any pressure to do so, to give 10% or any other amount of money. So when tithing is sold as a necessary practice to improve our relationship with God or to demonstrate that we're a legitimate Christian or to apply pressure in any way, imply that the Bible is the one putting the pressure on it, on us, it is anti-biblical. Because the Bible does not say that. It actually goes against what the Bible says, which everyone should give out of uh, what they come to believe in their heart, not out of compulsion. Well, the same can be said about prayer, about devotionals, about church attendance, about abstaining from alcohol, and many other pious religious practices and behavior. Misusing Scripture, twisting it, pulling it out of literary context, amplifying it, minimizing or omitting it, failing to consider the culture and historical context, just to make a point and support a position is to create a false biblical narrative and is therefore anti-biblical. It's using the Bible to do something that goes against its overall principles. Anti-biblical is bad. It is anti-truth. Jesus is the truth. Anti-biblical is anti-Jesus. It's the philosophy and position of anti or against Christ. It can oftentimes take the form of adding to the gospel, which is no gospel at all. It is not good news. It's like, here's more stuff for you to do. Anyway, more on that later. Now that those terms are out there, I need to talk a minute about how simple the gospel is, despite the monster the church has become. The simple message of the gospel has, for the most part, been lost. Jesus could talk to a perfect stranger for 10 minutes and convey all the information necessary for that person to gain eternal life. If one is elected by God to hear and understand it, at the core of the gospel is a very simple, easy-to-understand message. There is no Bible school or seminary necessary to understand and live by it. Once Jesus conveyed his simple message, he moved on without placing a burden on anyone, nor did he ever place any expectations of adhering to any kind of religion on anyone. 
That is an important, fundamental part of the good news. Please understand the essence of Jesus' gospel. By believing in Jesus, who He said He is, and what He accomplished, and by making Him your Lord, in other words, totally relying on Him for your eternal status, you are justified in the eyes of God and guaranteed to be forgiven for your sins. You become His, Jesus' possession, and are adopted into His family, which is what makes it possible to gain eternal life. Nothing else is required. So, if the Holy Spirit has called you to believe this, this simple information, belief in Jesus, what is your natural, organic response to that simple gospel message? It's like it's too good to be true. Besides the emotions you might feel as you believe this good news, what is it? I mean, it's like almost unbelievable news, right? What is it your belief in Jesus compels you to do, if anything? Is it go to church? <laughs> Will you intuitively start modifying your behavior? Will you feel an intrinsic need to tithe 10% of your income? Will you tell others about the gospel? Where do your thoughts on how to react to this amazingly good news come from? Remember, it's only authentic belief in Jesus that saves you. That's all it takes. That's all that it is. That He is the Messiah and the Son of God. Let's take this a little further. Imagine you live in a world with no churches, no preachers to influence you, and no other preconceived cultural Christian notions. No, I'm not talking about <laughs> John Lennon's song, Imagine. But now, answer the same question given that. Like, no preachers telling you what to think about what you believe in. No churches that are there. No Christianity. Answer this same question. How do you respond to the simple good news that Jesus has for you, that it's just belief, authentic, true belief in Him, making Him your Lord that saves you, depending on Him for your salvation. What is it that you will do in response to His gospel in the absence of those traditional religious trappings? In this world, I'm trying to get you to imagine there is no man-made institution that represents God no formal ministries to be a part of, no televangelists, no institutionalized Christian religious services. It's a world devoid of any Christian religious framework. All you have is the knowledge of the gospel that Jesus imparted to you, that he's the Son of God, Messiah, and you need to depend on him. What now is your response to the gospel? How would it play out in your life the next day after you believed in this, the next month, the next year, would you naturally think to yourself, hmm, I need to find other like-minded people and meet with them on Sunday mornings. And I feel like I need to stare at the back of their semi-anonymous heads while I sing along with 300-year-old songs and listen to a guy being paid to talk to me about my behavior. I think what Jesus is really saying is that if I really believe in him, he wants me to blindly give 10% of my money away in faith. Well, you know, there's plenty of other things <laughs> that you might be led to believe, but I hope not. I hope that's not your natural response to the gospel. Does this world I asked you to imagine sound too theoretical, too far-fetched? Well, it shouldn't. In fact, this imaginary world isn't imaginary at all. And I'm not just talking about when the church got its start. I'm talking about the underground church in Iran today. The church in Iran doesn't consist of a church building. It has no paid preachers or regular religious services. The church in Iran is made up of people who believe the gospel, who secretly interact with, support, and love one another while patiently awaiting the return of Jesus. And they do so at great risk to their lives. This world that I ask you to imagine, and that exists in Iran today, among other places, describes something very similar to the primal or early church. We have got to understand Jesus' simple message. 
please understand that he did not come to do these things. He didn't come to start a worldwide institution or network of support groups and social clubs. He didn't come to start a building program. He did not come to start a social service agency. He didn't come to fight for social justice issues. He did not come to start a new religion based on multi-level marketing schemes that's kind of like Judaism 2.0. He did not come to form an organization that he would eventually save the world through. He did not come to protect and defend the American way of life. He didn't come to make us successes in this current age we live in or make our lives trouble and debt-free. Remember, John 3.16 does not say, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son to make everyone healthy, happy, content, and successful in this world. So, what is it all about? What is our purpose? And what is it that Jesus did come to do? Are you ready for this? <laughs> Here's the answer. Jesus came to call out a new, eternal, holy people for God and graft them into his family. He came to save those from their sins who believe in and rely on him to do so. To those who believe, he will grant eternal life and make them citizens in the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that is clearly not of this world. This kingdom is not of our making, but of His making. He came the first time to be credentialed as the Messiah of both the Jews and non-Jews who will one day put all His enemies under His feet and deliver the Gentile nations back to His Father. So, has the church failed in presenting Jesus' simple gospel message? Yes. The man-made institutional church has failed miserably. It's time Christians admit it. However, this man-made church is quite different from what Jesus is associated with. Jesus' ecclesia, his kingdom, has never failed, and it's as strong as it ever has been. So, let's talk about the church versus Jesus' kingdom otherwise known as the Ecclesia. As we know, in an age where the term fake news is heard almost every day in the media, information does not always come to us in its purest form. To get at the truth, we need to consider the possibility that the information passed down to us has been tainted by human hands, or even the non-human hands, of Satan. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17, the Bible testifies to itself as being the inspired, infallible Word of God. But often, by the time the inspired, infallible Word gets translated, interpreted, traditionalized, marginalized, regurgitated, and marketed, it's been corrupted and very tainted by humans. As many apologetic books have documented, there's a substantial and reliable archaeological and, and historical evidence to support that God's Word, the Bible, was handed down from the original authors in the original languages with outstanding accuracy. As the Gospel spread in written form, it was carefully recopied. Recopying is not the issue. <laughs> the corruption of Scripture, as minor as it might be, was brought about when people who didn't read and understand Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic desired to know firsthand the message that God gave to humans. They demanded to have God's Word in their own modern languages. Translating Scripture into common languages became necessary. Translation is not as simple as finding a word in one language that's the direct equal of a word in another language. Translation requires a great deal of interpretation. Just as in the English language, many Greek words have several different meanings. Some are very subtle. Let's take a look at an English example of this using the word see, S-E-E. -E. First, I see visually you there. Next, 
You're going to see, escort, me out. I see, I understand. Well, see, carry it out. To it. As soon as I can see, meet with, the boss, we will see, find out, about this. By the way, have you been seeing, dating, anyone? The see, the center of Roman Catholic power, is applying pressure on us. Very few words share the same direct meanings across languages. Interpretation is subject to many factors, and unfortunately, the apostles of Jesus haven't been around to supervise when this happens. It's common once a translator develops or buys into a set of theological points of view that they'll use that point of view to help them translate scripture. If the Greek text appears to be saying one thing, but it seems to conflict with their theology, and there's another way to interpret the scripture which does not conflict with their theology, well, guess what they're going to go with? They'll go with what does not conflict with their theology. The third English translation of the Bible, and the first popular version to endure to this day, was the authorized King James of England version. Some today still swear by the King James Version of the Bible, that it, that it is the inspired and infallible Word of God. Those who hold this belief reason that God will not allow His Word to become polluted by mankind, and that was the thread of communication of God through the King James Version of the Bible to us. Yet, because only God is perfect, and incorruptible, and man is clearly neither of those things, seekers of truth need to be really careful with such a belief. The findings of 2,000 years worth of archaeology and ancient documents were not available to scholars of the Middle Ages when the King James Version was written. The Dead Sea Scrolls and other such ancient writings had not yet been discovered. Neither did we have access to the mass quantities of scholarly and academic information available on computers now and the internet. Our knowledge of the ancient world is much more complete than what it was during the time of King James. A modern student or scholar, a student of scripture with access to word search engines, huge databases, Lexicon applications and high-definition copies of original documents can accomplish in a few minutes and with more accuracy what may have taken a 17th century translator or theologian months or even years to do. Any student of a Greek language can tell you how dependent accurate translation is on context. Unfortunately, like I just said, context is sometimes dictated by someone's pre-existing theology. More likely than deciding based on one's personal theological points of view when translating an authorized translation of the Bible is to rely on pre-existing orthodox doctrine. When a judgment call needs to be made on how to translate something, how will the translator decide when there is such a question? Well, usually the translator will decide to support existing orthodox doctrine, especially when the translation has been commissioned by the church or now by a publishing company that's trying to please a particular meaningful-sized denominational customer base. <laughs> of course, the big powerful scary word orthodox <laughs> does not mean true. It just means widely accepted and supported by the authorities. One of the most glaring examples of how humanness has crept into the Bible was when the medieval translators pulled a word switcheroo. It's contributed to a wrong picture of what modern people call church or the church. Transliteration, or the word transliteration, is the process of transferring a word from the alphabet of one language to similar sounding letters in another language. It helps us to pronounce words of foreign languages. The Greek word transliterated as kuriakos means belonging to the Lord. It's a form of the Greek word transliterated as kurios, which is from the same root word as kuriakos, which means Lord, kuriakos, Lord, right?
Well, the word kuriakos began to come into use in the 4th century AD. This is the 300s or the 4th century AD. It was used to describe not people who belong to the Lord, but the dedicated physical places of Christian worship. They were referred to as the Lord's house or house of the Lord. Kuriakos literally referred to a building dedicated to the purpose of Christian meeting. Prior to this time, there were almost no buildings, no church buildings, that served as exclusive places of Christian worship. They didn't need any such word. The word kirke was derived from kuriakos. Kirke evolved into kirch, and kirch eventually evolved into the English word church. As just in Scotland, the word for church there is still kirk, which comes from kirke. Despite the word church showing up all over the place in English translations of the New Testament, the word kuriakos is used only twice. This is in the Greek original language. Kuriakos is used only twice in the New Testament. Once in 1 Corinthians 11.20 regarding the Lord's Supper, and once in Revelation 1.10 concerning the Lord's Day. Surprisingly, kuriakos, the Greek word that serves as the basis for the English word church, is never actually translated to mean church in the entire New Testament. So, the Greek word that was translated as church 115 times in the New Testament is ekklesia, and it does not mean the Lord's. The word church is found in most Bibles today because of politics. As various English translations of the Bible began to be produced and differ in how they were translated, the religious authorities sought to control them. They did so by using the backing of secular governmental powers. Seeking to put a huge controversy to rest regarding how to translate the Bible in his day, from 1604 to 1611, 47 learned members of the Church of England were commissioned by King James I to translate the collection of letters and books that make up the Old and New Testament of the Bible into English. How could 47 scholarly clergymen error so badly as to translate such an important word that represents the body of Christ? How could they get that wrong? The answer is that they did so under the direct instructions of King James himself. The king had instructed the men responsible for translating what many to believe the most important document on earth, the King James Version of the Bible, to reflect the organizational hierarchy structure of the Church of England and to stress the importance of ordained clergy in their translation of the Bible. For example, here is rule number three. I mean, this is literally rule number three set out by King James I. It starts with this preamble. For the better ordering of the proceeding of translators, His Majesty recommended following rules to them to be very careful, ob carefully observed. Here's rule number three. The old ecclesiastical words to be kept, as the word church is not to be translated congregation. Okay, so picture a United States president giving a set of Bible scholars instructions based on how he wanted the Bible to turn out. Rather than allowing the translators to let the original language of Scripture take them where it may, King James instructed them to follow the same rules as the translators of an earlier controversial English translation of the Bible had followed. What? <laughs> the King James Bible is not the original English authorized translation of the Bible? That's right. The Bishop's Bible preceded the King James authorized version. It was translated under the authority and sponsorship of Queen Elizabeth I and the Church of England 36 years earlier in 1568. The Bishop's Bible translation was in response to yet another earlier English translation of the Bible a translation that was not authorized by the Church of England. It was called the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible 
was produced after Protestant Bible scholars fled England under the rule of Queen Mary I. Bloody Mary, who subscribed to Roman Catholicism unlike her dad. She was responsible for burning over 280 Protestants at the stake. She had no appreciation for the Protestant church her father had started in England. Mary's father, King Henry VIII, established the Church of England when he separated his nation from the Roman Catholic Church for personal reasons. He wanted to divorce Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, but the Pope wouldn't let him, so Henry started his own church that would let him. Under Henry VIII, the first full English translation of the Bible was completed and mass-produced. That Bible was translated by William Tyndale, you might have heard of him, and it was completed by Miles Coverdale. Some theologians and scholars that fled Queen Mary's England took up residency in Geneva, Switzerland, where famed Protestant reformer John Calvin was the primary spiritual leader. As the tug-of-war with the English translation of God's Word began, the Geneva Bible, under the supervision of John Knox, you know, famed Scottish theologian John Knox, and Miles Coverdale, and under the direct influence of John Calvin, it took on a very Protestant feel. In fact, the annotations that were included in the margins of the Bible were clearly from a Calvinist and Puritan perspective. The Geneva Bible did not place as great of emphasis on church hierarchy. As the Geneva Bible gained great popularity back home in England, many of the church officials there became concerned and upset. The Church of England, which started under Henry VIII, was still patterned after Roman Catholicism and its hierarchical structure. Clergy officials in England did not agree with the importance of the role that lay people should play in the organization of the church. In their opinions, religion should be left to the professional clergy. I mean, they were making a good living off of it. Thus, the Bishop's Bible, sponsored by the Church of England, was born in response to the Geneva Bible, you know, the Protestant Geneva Bible. The new Bishop's Bible omitted the Protestant Calvinist-based commentary and steered Scripture back in the direction of a God who supported an established hierarchical clergy structure. Are you confused yet? <laughs> of course, the Puritans, who represented a sect of the Church of England, didn't like the changes they found in the Bishop's Bible. And they strongly objected. So, tensions began to rage between these two camps. So, what does a king do when he feels political pressure and the people don't like what the Bible has to say? Following a conference convened by King James on the matter in Hampton in 1604, he set out, at least on the surface, to get God's Word back on track. So, because of the pressure of the established church on the one side and the lay people on the other side, the translation and interpretation pendulum did again swing and the most hallowed King James authorized version of the Bible was created. Taking this approach, the King James biblical scholars not only translated scriptures, but they also interpreted them according to church cultural practices of their time and the will of their very human king. Another example of interpretation versus translation is that of the Greek word episkopos which literally means overseer. Since overseers in the Church of England were called bishops, per the king's rules, bishop is how the word was translated in the King James Version. Whereas the word overseer may take on any number of informal meanings, choosing the word bishop communicates a God-ordained official title. Modern translations today, such as the English Standard Version, you know, the ESV, have corrected a few of these types of medieval interpretations, but they have left the word church intact. The name change from ecclesia to church only serves to introduce a much larger problem. The ecclesia of the New Testament is not what the church has become. What the body of Christ is called only scratches the surface of how the church has so little to do 
with the ecclesia. Although the true church, as we might appropriately think of it, really is the Lord's, as the Greek word kuriakos would denote, the rich meaning of the actual word used by Jesus and his apostles, which is ecclesia, has been lost in translation. Instead, church, as identifying a building used by Christians for worship, evolved into the 15th century idea of how a group of Christians should be organized and function in England, (laughs) and it's now become today's idea of how groups of Christians should be organized and function. Church, or the church, is a term that brings definite images and expectations to mind today. However, it's a term reflecting practices that never should have been if the principles of the New Testament were simply to be followed. But why does any of this matter? Isn't the church still the church, no matter what we call it? Isn't the word church just a label? Well, let me be clear about this. It's only important to understand the meanings of words used in the Bible if you want to know what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, and the others meant when they used the words. One must read the words in the Bible with understanding, then make the decision regarding if it matters or not. The misinterpretation of the word church in the New Testament has led to wrong conclusions about how we think of the greater body of the followers of Jesus and what the purpose and function of their meeting together is. Well, that's all we have time for today. Next time, I'm going to talk about the word that does, in fact, represent Jesus' kingdom as he and his apostles used it in the Bible. That word, of course, is ecclesia, meaning the people who are chosen and called out from the rest of the world. The ecclesia is not a place you go, it's who you are. But we'll talk about that next time. Until then, why not consider picking up a dozen or so copies of Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus? (laughs) And give them to your friends and family. I'm just kidding. A good friend of mine said he wanted to leave a copy at every local church in his town. I think they can be used as a good tool. I often say that the Western Church is one of the biggest mission fields in the United States. Anyway, have a great day, and may God bless you richly, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.